Hey everybody, I'm George and welcome to another episode of The Best Little Horror House in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest at least. And today's guest is my pal who might not have Danger as his middle name, but it is part of his last. <laughs> Patrick Dangermond is here. Welcome, Pat. Hi, George. How are you doing today? Doing great. Doing great. Really excited to talk about today's movie. But before we get to it, I mean, we didn't get to go over this. You're one of the trustees. Unfortunately, there was a technical error that forced you off of Friday the 13th Part 2 episode. And so we didn't get to hear about your relationship with horror. And so let's uh, let's get to that first. Well, my relationship, it was going back to a when I was a kid, I used to watch TNT Monster Vision. So I was exposed to a lot of that stuff, the weird horror movies, the kaiju movies, and things like that. And then I watched a lot of the slasher movies, uh, a lot of the Freddy movies, Friday the 13th movies, Halloween movies, and all that stuff. Um, and then kind of when I got into high school, was in that Renaissance period after Scream. So you had your Urban Legends, you had your Valentines, your Swim Fans, like... I know what you did last summers. Um, And that really, you know, kind of made me fall in love with that particular genre. Yeah. I mean, that's prime, prime age for it, for all those teen slashers and everything to be coming out. I mean, how can you say no to that? I know for sure. And then it got to a point, like when I was in college was when the torture porn movies started coming out and it kind of got turned off by it. Mm -hmm. I remember specifically, I saw the Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake, which I think was a little before that. Yeah. 2003, maybe. I think it was that. Mm -hmm. When I saw that in the theaters, I came back home and I had to sleep with the lights on because it was so <laughs> loud and so scary to me. I just like freaked me out. I don't know what it was, but they really lean into it. Yeah, in they do. <laughs> they do. The chainsaw in the theater setting is insane. Yeah, I, I think that that makes a lot of sense. Uh, so you, is that your favorite subgenre then? Is that sort of slashers? Uh, it sounds like that was kind of how you got your start and also what really uh, kind of picked things up for you. So is that your favorite or uh, just something that really kicked things off? I think the slasher is definitely the most fun for me. Um, sometimes if it's a little too realistic or um, like, I'm not really a big fan of hereditary or Midsommar or anything mm-hmm. like that. It's just a bit too uh, morbid for my taste. I prefer the more fun <laughs> side of the sure. horror movies where you just have disposable teenagers, I guess. Well, Hey, today's <laughs> movie is uh, right in, right in line with that. It's part of one of my favorite franchises. I watched the first two to prep for this, and I'm just going to keep watching. We're talking about Final Destination 2. Uh, th- I mean, what a great movie. I'm so excited to talk about this one. And yeah, I mean, t- talk a little bit about why you picked it, I guess. What what made you pick this one in particular? So I, too, have watched the first two recently. And I think I like one okay. But two is really the one where they're just kind of like, screw it. Like, let's just <laughs> let's just make this as fun as possible. Let's just go crazy. And I think it satisfies this weird thing I has a kid. Do you know, like, Rube Goldberg machines? Yes. And, like, yeah. Like, that's very satisfying. Just watch it all play out and just have, like, a completely unexpected outcome. Mm-hmm. And I think that's just a lot of fun to see play out on screen. Yeah, I think that what's great about these movies is that they really are all about spectacle. And it's all about watching that Rube Goldberg of death <laughs> unfold in front of you. Yeah, they're always really unexpected, too. They're, always, <laughs> it's, they're like, oh, this is going to go one way. Oh, well, actually, something even crazier or more sudden is going to happen. So Yeah, they string you along. They really do. Yeah. <laughs> 
So Final Destination as a concept is actually based on a spec script for the X-Files by Jeffrey Reddick. When he was looking for a TV agent, he wrote this spec script named uh, Flight 180. Perfect opportunity for a plug of the Patreon where you can join in a community watch along of the (laughs) (laughs) X-Files, which I'm enjoying very much, just like I do these movies. But when that became a movie instead... It was a huge success, the first Final Destination. It made $112.9 million on its $23 million budget. Wow. Yeah, huge success. And the director, uh, James Wong, said, The entertainment value is in the ride, not the outcome. And there's this great feeling of dread and tension throughout the whole movie because you know how they go. And I think that that's exactly what we were talking about earlier is that it's really, you're along for the ride. You don't really care about these characters. You're... You like them enough that you hope things turn out okay for them. You're invested in the story, but you're still like, oh, okay, when the deaths start piling up. Yeah, I think that's something that's interesting about it because I was kind of taking notes while I was watching it this time. And uh, there was a few times where I was just like, I don't remember any of these characters' names. <laughs> They're just like so... There's a point in the movie where you're just like, oh, these characters were completely disposable. Like, they made it appear you, you, you. know them by their deaths, almost. Like, that's how you refer to them is, oh, it's the, the trisected guy, or it's the elevator lady. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or it's just like, oh, those people were in a car, now they're just gone. <laughs> so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, the, that quote from James Wong kind of reminds me of John Carpenter a little bit, talking about horror being the closest thing that we have today to the oral tradition because you have a few settings and stories that the genre mixes up and kind of swaps in these interchangeable parts. But I think that what makes Final Destination so unique is that it takes these everyday settings that we understand the normal setup and it really turns them on their head and turns the setting into the killer in a really unique and fascinating way that I, I have never seen another movie execute this sort of thing on such an uh, excellent level. Yeah, it's. I think that's something, I don't know if it's necessarily innovative because I haven't seen every single movie, but it felt really innovative for the time. Like for slasher movies in particular, all of them have your Michaels, your Jasons, your Freddies, your Chuckies, etc. But this one kind of gets down to brass tacks and it's like, the killer is death. <laughs> yeah. You can't avoid death. You're not going to kill death. So it's just like, when is it going to happen? And I think that's really an interesting way to go about it. Right. And I think it, it, it's also interesting because not only can you not kill death, but you can't even try and reason with it. Like, it's not, there's no physical presence for you to be like, oh, well, maybe we can hurt them. Or maybe if we can just run away fast enough and get away from them. It's everywhere. It's this immu- immutable force. Uh, I think that it really is spectacular. Yeah. Yeah. And kind of in a way, it's kind of like it follows because it's just yeah. like it's always stalking you and it's just whenever it catches you, it's that's it. Totally agree. <laughs> it follows owes a lot to Final Destination. <laughs> you heard it here first. <laughs> and to give proper credit, Glenn Morgan is the writing partner of James Wong. He helped develop the Final Destination 1 script into its final form and he produced Final Destination as well. Plus, James and Glenn were part of the initial production crew of the X-Files, so they really were perfect to sort of get this thing off on the right foot. Oh, interesting. That said, for part two, Reddick, the original writer, wanted to expand the mythology and not just say, okay, how can we kill a new batch of victims? So although they did set up a new group for Death to chase after, they did also bring back the character of Clear from the first one, played by Ali Larder, Tony Todd's role as the mysterious mortician who knows more than he should, Billy Bloodworth. (laughs) Great name. It's a great name. (laughs) 
Also, I'm just throwing this out there, but when Tony Todd wants to sit back and just cash some easy checks, he should turn that character or a legally distinct version of it into a horror host. Chime in a few times each movie to hiss something about the inevitability of death. Who says no to that? That would be good, like the new Crypt Keeper. Yeah. Yeah, I'm into that. So Wong and Morgan were already tied up working on The One, that Jet Li movie, uh, which they both wrote and Wong directed, and Willard, which Morgan wrote and directed and Wong produced. So they couldn't make it back for the second Final Destination, and the studio instead went with David R. Ellis. You might know David R. Ellis as the director of Snakes on a Plane, a movie I had not thought about in years <laughs> until incredible doing movie. research. <laughs> But he's also a second unit director and stunt coordinator of note on movies like Waterworld, Master and Commander, and Matrix Reloaded. Hmm. And so, because he had this history of working on these big stunt and action scenes as a second unit director, and in a way, like we said, these are all about these Rube Goldberg executions, as Ellis himself said, it felt like a pretty natural transition. I think that that is kind of cool that they like were like, okay, let's give it to someone whose focus has been on making these set pieces look the best that they can in more classic examples of movies. I, I think that that's a, a cool, cool behind the scenes or behind the camera uh, thing that they had going on. Yeah. I, that's really interesting because I did kind of a cursory dive just to see, cause I had no idea who this director was. And the only director credit I saw before that was Homeward Bound 2. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, what, how did that make that jump? That's so crazy to be like, I work with dogs and now I'm killing teens. <laughs> It just made no sense. You know, who knows what was going on uh, when they were bound for home. <laughs> yeah. There was death was chasing them. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy. San Francisco is crazy, man. <laughs> you gotta watch out. Yeah. AJ Cook plays Kimberly Corman, the lead of the movie, along with Allie Larder's Clear. AJ said that she jumped at the chance to be in this movie because of the lack of horror movies with one good female lead, much less two, hmm. um, which I thought was an interesting note of hers. I did also take pause at her name because Final Destination is littered with name check references to gothic horror and German expressionism. Huh. Uh, the two FBI agents are Ween and Shrek. Uh, Robert Ween directed The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, and Max Shrek played the titular character in Murnau's Nosferatu. And you better believe we got a character named Larry Murnau. Uh, the two Wagner brothers reference the composer and director Richard, uh, Richard Wagner, an important precursor to expressionist music and a big-time anti-Semite to boot. Um, <laughs> Alex Browning references Todd Browning as the director of Dracula. Valerie Luton references Val Luton, the producer of Hitchcock's Rebecca, among others. Um, speaking of, Sean William Scott plays Billy Hitchcock. And uh, the one final reference I caught in the original Final Destination is the character of Blake Dreyer referencing the director of Vampire. Carl Theodore Dreyer, Mount Abraham, a very German town, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't catch many of those things. Um, but it is interesting how like horror tends to like reference itself. And they're always like, like uh, Scream has Billy Loomis. And then right. uh, Halloween itself references Psycho. And it's just like they all want to like pay homage to each other, it seems like. Yeah, I think that there is a real understanding that a lot of these movies have to stand on the shoulders of those who came before them. And they have a real appreciation for that that I don't think necessarily comes through in other genres. Yeah, it seems like horror movies in particular, people who make them are particularly uh, proud of them and are particularly, what's the word I'm looking for? Like precious with the history of it, yeah. um, which is really exciting to see. You don't see that in like action movies or dramas necessarily, things like that. Yeah, I totally agree. 
And so Final Destination 2 doesn't have quite as many name checks as that <laughs> first one, or at least not as many as that I picked up on. But as I said, we do get Kimberly Corman, who references Roger Corman, very famous director and producer. We also have Nora and Tim Carpenter, obviously John Carpenter. And Evan Lewis, this might be a little bit of a stretch. I thought maybe it was Herschel Gordon Lewis. He's a giant in the horror game. Who okay, knows? we'll give maybe. it to you. We'll give it to you. Uh, Maybe I'm giving them too much credit. (laughs) (laughs) Could be, but who knows? And like the first movie, Final Destination 2 was shot in British Columbia around Vancouver Island, to be specific, and Highway 19, Campbell River, and Okanagan Lake, to be even more specific. Huh. Uh, So people could go visit that. And uh, the temps of the lake were around 37 degrees Fahrenheit, or just under 3 degrees Celsius, so tough to film in, although the actual underwater stunts were done in a controlled tank environment. Oh, okay. That makes sense, because I couldn't imagine them, like, sinking a person (laughs) in a car in 37 degrees water. Yeah, that sounds like hell. But but yeah, I listened to the commentary, because I I literally ordered, like, the franchise set for this. Oh, yeah. I was like, oh, what a great opportunity. (laughs) So... (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I was going to do that too, but it was like not going to get here fast enough. So I'm like, well, I'll just bite the bullet. <laughs> Buy it <laughs> well, twice. Hey, there you go. The uh, the the commentary is pretty fun, and uh, they talk about that. So if you're interested, people out there, check it out. <laughs> <laughs> but AJ Cook and Michael Landis, who plays Burke, did perform their own stunts using a rebreather and a scuba tank to stay alive. <laughs> so Wow, good for them. Yeah. As far as the effects, I thought that it was kind of interesting that the iconic pile-up and resulting log palement was basically the deciding factor for the studio that they went with, um, Digital Dimension, because the crew had just tested some actual logs dropping and realized they only bounce about an inch, which is good news for people who have been terrified by this movie, but bad news for people trying to make people be terrified of this movie. <laughs> yeah, I guess they're hoping a lot of wood experts aren't going to be watching this movie. <laughs> There's one guy in the theater who stands up and is like, that's fucking bullshit. (laughs) This is completely ridiculous. That's not what Wood does at all. (laughs) This whole movie, I'm walking out. Who's with me? But Digital Dimension had just finished a test shot of CG logs bouncing. And so they had sent it in as their like, hey, consider us for your special effects. And uh, everyone agreed. They were like, oh, look at this. We can just use CG logs for this scene. No problem. Wow. I do think it's interesting, though, that they did still try and keep things practical as possible. Uh, there are no CGI cars. The bodies are all casts. There are. It's a blend of practical and digital blood. So, you know, not too shabby, especially for the time period where they were really sort of tending to lean into uh, digital effects a lot. Yeah, some of them do look pretty impressive where I was like, I was watching it and I couldn't really tell if it was CG or not. Maybe I was just paying close attention to the movie, but it's particularly with the fire escape one, it looks pretty, pretty realistic. And especially I know that it's not practical, but uh, you, in most of the horror movies, when someone burns to death, they don't show it like the way they do in this movie, how it kind of like the peeling of the skin <laughs> and yeah. And it was like pretty gruesome to look at, but it looked cool. Yeah, even even the digital stuff does look pretty good. I mean, not to jump too far ahead, but when when Rory gets cut in half, like or not half in three, like and he slides <laughs> slides <laughs> off himself, I was like, that looks pretty good. You can tell though. I mean, it, it's not distracting, but you can tell when you compare it to something like the window falling and like that kid getting crushed. <laughs> yes. Very practical effect. Really made me laugh. <laughs> yeah, it's really sudden. And it's one of those things where, like, obviously the beginning of the movie is incredible. But when you see that, you're like, okay, I'm I'm sold. This is brilliant. <laughs> and this was actually the lowest grossing of the series, uh, making $90.4 million on a $26 million budget, 
which is unfortunate. It does kind of make sense to me, I guess. People who foolishly didn't like the goofiness of the first one tapped out, so you have to kind of rebuild with the people who are out there evangelizing for it. So, you know, it is uh, unfortunate, but I think that the uh, appreciation has definitely swung back in favor of Final Destination 2, which is nice to see. Yeah, and I think in particular with the series, it kind of has an earnestness of it knows what it is and it knows what it's mm-hmm. doing. So it's, I think as long as you know what you are and you're confident in it, like people are going to appreciate that and enjoy it. Yeah, also, $90.4 million, pretty good. Still. That's really, yeah, <laughs> I can't believe that these movies make this much money. It's crazy. <laughs> I will say that like the actual critical reception was pretty negative on release. You know I had to see what Raj had to say about this one. Mm, that, that fucking guy. <laughs> he said, Final Destination 2 takes a good idea and pounds it into the ground, not to mention decapitating, electrocuting, skewering, blowing up, incinerating, drowning, and gassing it. Perhaps movies are like history and repeat themselves, first as a tragedy, then as a farce. One and a half stars. Thanks for your regular contributions to the show, pal. <laughs> Yeah, so it sounds like he got it. He just got the star rating wrong. Yeah, (laughs) exactly, exactly. But like I said, the appreciation has grown certainly among audiences, and the highway scene is so iconic. It's literally the first thing I hear about every time I try and talk about this franchise to someone. So haters kick rocks as far as I'm concerned. (laughs) Absolutely. To get into the actual movie, exactly one year after the explosion of Flight 180, we get this nice little synopsis of the the first one through a newscast, horror classic, gets you up to speed real quick, Mm -hmm. and college student Kimberly Corman is joined by her friend Shayna. They're going on a trip to Daytona Beach for spring break with her friends Dano and Frankie. Those those are the names you will never need to remember. And I didn't. (laughs) (laughs) And her dad warns her to be safe and buckle up. And when the car pulls away, he notices what looks like a trail of blood under the car. Ooh. Oh, it's so good. Like the, all the foreshadowing in the movie, you're just like, oh, I can't wait. You're just rubbing your hands together. <laughs> <laughs> you really are. It, it really plays into that anticipation in such a great way. Mm-hmm. We see them pull out onto the highway at mile 180, the same number of the flight that crashed in the first one. Mm-hmm. And they're driving along. And again, this is sort of where that tension and, and build up really <laughs> starts going. You know, you see a bus full of football players screaming pile up, which <laughs> that's weird. They even pointed out in the movie. They're like, why would they be screaming pile up? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, the sign that says demolish the Mustangs is hanging off of it as well. That's funny to me. Highway to Hell plays on the radio as well. I, this is what I love. Like, it's all very on the nose stuff. But that earnestness that you're talking about is exactly what I'm here for. They don't take themselves seriously while still maintaining the veneer of seriousness, which I think is key to a movie like this. Yeah, I think so, too. If they had gone, if they had not gone this route and they tried to go a serious route and say, we're going to you know, ground it and take it back to its roots, I don't think it works at all. I think it just needs to have this amount where you're just like, there's anticipation building and they're like, just hammering home. They're just like, this is what the movie is. And you're just like, okay, yeah, I get it. This is great. So keep doing it. Even the other way, if they went too jokey with it and all the characters were always like, uh, this is fucking stupid. Like poking holes in it, you know, self-referential kind of stuff would definitely be the way it would pan out if it came out today. But in this, because they all take it seriously, you're able to sort of separate from the logic leaps and be like, no, I'm I'm engaged. They all take it seriously, so I'm going to as well and just enjoy the fun 
side effects. The, the, the characters themselves are not really like the, the funny parts of it. No. And it's, I mean, in a way it's kind of a Mad Lib movie in that you could say blank happens to blank and then blank. And um, what, going back a little bit to the opening, I thought it was interesting to the newscast, they just went straight to the premise and they're just like, here's what's happening. Here's what everybody thinks. We don't need to explain it again. Yeah. And it's just like, it really works. And you can get to the fun, like within five minutes of the movie. Yeah, absolutely. And so they're on the road. Kimberly's dad calls her to warn her about the transmission fluid that her car is leaking, which is what created the blood trail uh, that we saw earlier. She does not tell him he's on speaker. Terrible phone etiquette. <laughs> there is a cop right behind them. So Dano, who is smoking a joint in the car, tells Kimberly to get in the right lane. She swerves and almost hits this logging truck before finally shifting in behind it. Dano throws the joint, which lands on the windshield of the lady driving with one hand because she's smoking and on the phone. Obviously not safe. It lights the dead leaves stuck in the wipers on fire before she manages to get them off by turning the wipers on. It's so good, like how insane it is where they just set up everything. And it's just like this whole cause and effect of everything that's going on. And you're just like, what is going to happen here? It's so good. Yeah, especially because since this is so early on, you understand that something is coming. But by setting up all of these various dangers on the road, we're still not sure exactly what's going to happen yet. We've seen the logger. We've seen this, uh, this woman who is clearly driving distracted. We see a lot more as well. You know, I just think that they do such a great job of keeping it ambiguous while still creating so many possibilities for what could happen in your mind. Right. And then one thing that really I stuck out to me, I don't know why, but nobody was wearing seatbelts. <laughs> like everybody's going, they made a point of it um, when the main character, she goes and buckles her seatbelt. And I'm just like, you've been driving on the freeway for how long? <laughs> and the guy that's doing coke in the car isn't wearing a seatbelt and the cop isn't wearing, it's just like, what? It's like the last thing the dad says too. He, he like when they pull out, he's like, "Be safe, buckle up." And she's like, eh. "Yeah." She's like, eh. It's like, well, yeah, you caused the death of like hundreds of people. <laughs> like, <laughs> Kimberly is worried about the car, but Shayna convinces her to keep going. We also see a very pregnant lady, which is kind of funny to me because they're like, "Oh, wouldn't it be fucked up if we killed her?" <laughs> I know, and you're just like, "Oh, come on, guys, don't do that." <laughs> Um, there's also a guy flying up the middle of the road on a motorcycle, a beer distributor trucker drinking a beer while he's driving, a kid playing with toys of a tractor trailer smashing into a red truck, which, <laughs> of course, Kim's truck is red as well. Yeah. We see the guy in the muscle car doing coke. It's a wet road. The cop has an open cup of hot coffee in the cup holder. Everything is balancing on a razor's edge. It's this incredible precipice that they keep you waiting on for so long. Yeah, and also with the kid who's playing with the water bottles where he's drumming them on the dashboard, and you're just kind of like, oh yeah, that's kind of nothing. It's just a kid, but it just plays into the whole thing. Yeah. And it's just interesting how they have all that. They're like setting up stuff and also being like, hey, this is going to happen. Can you believe it? Yeah, even stuff that doesn't like wind up coming back like the trucker with with the beer like that never comes up again but they they throw it in there as a red herring mm -hmm. and i think that's great yeah the cop gets behind the logging truck and he notices something is up when the coffee spills and he looks down distracted by it 
perfect moment for this chain on the log to snap, sending some logs tumbling down the turnpike, absolutely dashing this cop's head to smithereens. <laughs> Smash the shit out of him. It's so insane. It is such a satisfying effect when the flood of red goop just comes <laughs> flying out the back of the car. It's incredible. And it's just like, if he just kept the lid on his coffee, he probably would have been fine. Everyone reacts in their own way, ultimately culminating in what can only be described as a spectacular action set piece. It is literally a spectacle. There's heads flying out of sunroofs, limbs out windows, burning, explosions, practical crashes. It's fucking incredible. It's so good, and it's like so satisfying because they set it up like even the semi-driver, I believe, was the one that was drinking beer. When he just plows through the guy who's getting burned to death at the end, it just smashes and blows everybody up, and you're just like... Yeah. Ah. It's chef's kiss. It's so good. <laughs> uh, it really is great. This was actually based on a real-life pileup of 125 cars in Georgia in 2002, which is crazy. Really? I was, I'm originally from Southern California, and it was really foggy one day in Long Beach, and I think there was a 200-car pileup just because people couldn't see oh, each man. other, and they just all smashing into each other. Uh, no injuries, though. Good. Yeah, it's just like people just mashed into each other and moved on with their lives. It's weird. <laughs> Best case scenario, I guess. Pretty much. Kimberly comes to with a start, and we see that this was a premonition, much like on the plane in the first one, and things immediately start following the same path, which freaks her out big time. You know, I love that they don't give any indication, really, that it's a dream and that we are totally in the same exact shoes as the protagonist when she comes to and she's like, what the fuck just happened? <laughs> We're also like that. <laughs> yeah. And it's kind of an interesting choice that they choose not to explain it, too. They're just kind of like, oh, I get this premonition. That's it. Yeah. Later, she asks, like, did mom ever get premonitions or weird feelings? And the dad's <laughs> like, I don't fucking know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. She's dead or gone or somewhere. <laughs> yeah. She stalls her car on the entrance ramp, which prevents many of the deaths that we just saw. But the accident still happens. And the resulting confusion uh, still has a truck demolish Kim's truck. <laughs> which is so good because you're like, I was trying to remember, okay, like, which of these characters moves on and which of them die? And it was just like, oh, no, they just get blown up immediately and I don't have to think about them ever again immediately and it's good too because they were all really fucking annoying characters <laughs> i know i was trying to think the guy who was smoking pot if i recognized him from somewhere but i could that is that's a classic canadian actor i don't remember his name but he is in a lot of those canadian horror movies i feel like <laughs> it's probably it he's probably in like the i don't know like jason x or something like that <laughs> <laughs> that seems probable he's probably jason <laughs> He's actually David Cronenberg who gets murdered in that one. Oh, he looks so young in that movie. What happened? It's been a rough couple of years. Yeah, apparently. For old crony. She was outside. Kim was outside being questioned by the cops about why she stopped. And so, like we said, they all just get absolutely annihilated. But mm -hmm. she manages to survive. At the police station, they're all questioned by Deputy Marshal Burke, who was the cop that was on the ramp. This is when we sort of get to see some of the other characters that we're going to be involved with. Uh, lottery winner Evan Lewis, Nora Carpenter, and her 15-year-old son, Tim. Kat Jennings, the businesswoman who was the woman on the phone and with the cigarette. Uh, the guy in the muscle car with the Coke is Rory Peters. Isabella Hudson, the pregnant lady, and high school teacher Eugene Dix. And they all go their separate ways after the questioning, but Kimberly fears it's not over. It's a good thing it wasn't because there's a lot of goodness <laughs> that's coming up. Yeah, that would be a really short movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're like, well, and then we all moved on. 
that businesswoman, I really enjoyed her character because she's just so kind of snotty and self-important. And you got to respect somebody who can smoke on a treadmill. <laughs> That's a power move for sure. <laughs> yeah. It's just like, yeah, I'm, I'm canceling out this workout. Who cares? <laughs> That's how she maintains perfect neutral. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> we follow Evan living in an extremely rundown apartment, but carrying a ton of bags in an iMac box. As we saw, he was the, the lottery winner. This place that he lives in is psychotic. There is a doll missing an eye on the floor outside his door, a frying pan sitting on his table full to the brim with uncovered spaghetti. Yeah. And his solution to it was just throw it out the window without even looking. <laughs> He takes off his shirt. It reveals a single nipple ring. Yeah. And uh, God, this guy's a monster. It was like stressing me out. I was so glad he was going to die. <laughs> guy's trash. Uh, he goes to reheat some Chinese food and some mott sticks, but he sprays oil all over the stove. There's a bunch of knives just hanging in the open from those magnetic strips, which I was like, uh-oh, that looks dangerous. <laughs> Didn't actually come into play, but this that was another red herring where I was like, ooh, I clocked him. That's what's so satisfying about it, because it's just like he's just crashing around the apartment with not a care in the world, <laughs> having a one his lottery of two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, and he's yeah, it's, it's crazy. It must have been worth a lot back then, but um, <laughs> yeah, and he's just living in squalor and constant danger. I'm surprised it didn't happen earlier. Yeah, absolutely. He has those fridge magnets up, the like letter ones, and they they spell out "Hey E." Uh, the H drops to spell I, which is a lot of fun. Mm. And he doesn't notice the magnet in his food, though, when he pops it in the toaster oven. He goes and he undoes some of his bags, puts on a new gold watch. He goes and checks out his new diamond lucky horseshoe ring. Not so lucky, insane. though. No. <laughs> He's like, I think, doesn't he never put it on? It's also upside down, which I think is like, if it falls, it's unlucky now. Oh, so, uh, so. so many layers in this movie. That's right. That's right. This is well, this is a smart movie, folks. <laughs> <laughs> it sure is. He drops the ring down the garbage disposal, and he reaches in. Absolutely terrifying right there. <laughs> it's, yeah. It's pretty much like one of my biggest nightmares is losing something in the garbage disposal. I, I'm like, well, it's gone forever. I don't care what Yeah, <laughs> I would just say, that's, I'm never seeing that again. No. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> he reaches in, traps his hand just in time for the melting plastic of the magnet to ignite in the oven and crack the glass. And the oil in the pan starts a huge fire of its own. <laughs> oh, man. Just the fact that everything starts kicking off all at once. I love it. It's such a like jolt of energy. This movie is so kinetic. Yeah, and it seems like, it's particularly with this one, every single thing he does is the wrong choice. Because yeah. like when the fire goes off, he just throws a towel at it, which spreads the fire to the things he just bought. And it just like, so now he's stuck and his whole apartment's going up. It's incredible. He manages to free himself, but the fire extinguisher is empty. That's another dumb choice of his. <laughs> Check your fire extinguisher out there, kids. <laughs> Absolutely. It's yeah. fire safety. Uh, the windows slam shut. This is the one like genuinely supernatural thing that kind of happens here. Mm -hmm. But he breaks out and climbs down the fire escape just in time for the apartment to straight up explode. Yeah, it's 
I don't know. It, there's like no explanation for it. Just saying it's incredible. It's like, oh, you thought he was going to die, and then you think he's safety, but you're like, no, something's going to happen. I know something's going to happen. It is great. And, you know, he celebrates his luck on a solid ground before slipping on the spaghetti that he threw. Just as the fire escape fully drops, smashing through his eye socket, just as the magnets and the doll foretold. <sighs> and it's sloppiness that did him in at the end. Like his own sloppiness. It sure is. Mm-hmm. Evan, coulda, you could have saved yourself, my friend. Yeah, take a shower once in a while, Evan. <laughs> Get a job, long hair. <laughs> Get a job, hippie. Uh, Kimberly is having trouble sleeping, possibly because of the terrifying clown doll in her room. I don't know what the fuck is up with that marionette. That was bizarre. I think it was in the opening credits, too, right? Yeah. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> Um, she Googles Clear Rivers, though, the last survivor of Flight 180, which Detective Burke had revealed she committed herself to a psychiatric ward for protection after Alex Browning was killed by a falling brick. Um, great way to follow up the first one and connect it with the ending. He was originally supposed to get a flesh-eating bacteria, but I like the simplicity of a falling brick. I think that's kind of funny that after all the protection he was taking at the end, uh, that's what did him in. Yeah, I think it's a better choice because flesh-eating bacteria is just kind of like sad what do you do about that too like the brick is that's death doing his thing there's nothing there's nothing he could have prevented i guess with like a virus like that no you would never see it coming i agree good choice good instincts folks good job guys uh, Um, it is kind of funny to have the woman leading kimberly in confiscate all her sharp objects but when she goes in clear has like dozens of push pins <laughs> no it's she committed herself i don't think they would have given her like newspapers she could have paper cutted herself to death for all we know <laughs> who knows who knows death is tricky yeah, she doesn't she sure doesn't but they talk about death's list and when kimberly informs clear that evan was the first of the highway survivors to die unlike in her premonition clear realizes that the survivors are dying in reverse order death said fuck they're on to me let's switch it up <laughs> Kimberly calls her a coward who is already dead when Clear refuses to help, which I think is interesting. I don't know about coward necessarily. Uh, she's like, you have a responsibility. It's the same kind of thing of, uh, as, you know, this is another, can't believe I'm comparing Final Destination 2 to Day of the Dead, but <laughs> same kind of questions about sort of what do you owe your fellow man in terms of being able to help them uh, if you can. This seems to think that uh, people do have a responsibility to each other, which I agree with. Yeah, I think it's a, that's an interesting way to look at it, too, because kind of what I took from it was what kind of life are you leading if you're just going to live the rest of it in a padded cell? It's like you're sure. not really alive. It's Death could come at any time, so just you might as well just get out there and start living. Absolutely. Meanwhile, Tim and his mom are at the dentist, and things are already getting set up. First off, there's an instrumental of Rocky Mountain High playing, which is a, the sign from the first movie that something was about to go off. Right, and John Denver died in a plane crash. Sure did. Mm-hmm. There's a huge glass window pane being held by a construction crew swinging outside the window. A fish is trapped on the water filter, which is scary, honestly. <laughs> <to> yeah. <laughs> And this causes a leak onto an exposed plug and outlet. He's waving a needle around. Pigeons are flying into the window over and over. (laughs) It's so insane, the pigeons, because it's... I know that's a thing that happens, but how fast would they fly in to smash that window? (laughs) Really, really fast. It did take them three tries, but uh, they really went for it. That's true. More terrifying than the actual death is when the nitrous oxide thing shorts out and it's no more oxygen and the fake fish falls in Tim's mouth. 
I'm, like that scares me so fucking bad. <laughs> yeah, I think the scariest part for me was actually the drilling because he was just sitting there Ooh. drilling, and it's like, oh no, what's gonna? Uh, That's scary. Yeah. yeah, nobody likes getting <laughs> going to the dentist. So thankfully, he is saved by the nurse uh, or oral hygienist. I'm not sure exactly what her job is, but she there's a well, there's a woman at the dentist as well, and she saves him. And uh, they walk outside. Kimberly and Burke see them scream pigeons at him, which is, that's a weird choice. Yeah. Makes Tim scatter a bunch of them, as kids do. And, of course, this causes the pigeons to knock into the construction guy, who drops the glass pane on Tim, crushing him in a just delightful fashion. Like I said, this is a practical effect. I love it so much. He was just absolutely annihilated by that glass. (laughs) And say, to the point where they showed the body bag, I was like, what did you put in that body bag? <laughs> Is it just like loose pieces? <laughs> They're like, oh, got a bucket. Yeah. <laughs> a body bucket. <laughs> I think it's a lot of fun to make us think that it's going to be in the dentist. And then they pull the rug out on you. And you're like, oh, shit, you walked away from this. No problem. <laughs> yeah. And like with the dentist, especially when the fish fell in his mouth, the assistant just went in and it was like, bink. Yeah, huh, like they didn't that's want to weird. get in trouble. <laughs> yeah, I didn't expect that to happen. Yeah, and I also like that you can see the glass window, like the pane of glass, dangling from inside the dentist's office, and so they are setting it up, even if you don't know it yet. Yeah, it's it definitely feels like they took a lot of care into it, and it's not just arbitrary reasons why they're dying. It's like, you know it's going to happen, but you don't. Uh, I also thought it was funny that Tim was supposed to be nine, and the studio was like, no, no. <laughs> So they bumped it up to 13, and the studio was like, try one more time. (laughs) So they finally made him 15. Can you imagine if they killed a nine-year-old by smashing him with a plane of glass? That would have been amazing. Would have been a smaller body bucket. (laughs) Yeah, such a bold choice. (laughs) A body bowl that time. (laughs) Uh, But Clear checks out in order to help, and she hears about Tim. And so she introduces Kimberly and Burke to the mortician William Bloodworth, played again, like I said, by Tony Todd, in a wonderful role that persists through the entire franchise. I love that Tony Todd is in these. What a cool, cool guy. I love that, Tony Todd. Yeah, I I mean, I don't know if he's been in anything really bad or if he has been bad in anything that he's ever been in. He's always really solid and he's always really, adds a gravity to the situation, which is really cool. Yeah, I also really like the way that they go to visit him. It feels like they're like descending into the underworld to talk to him. It's a very cool kind of set that they go on to. Yeah, and it's kind of an interesting choice, particularly for this movie, because if you think about all of the the person he's with is Evan, right? And so Evan was kind of like a person who obviously didn't take care of himself, didn't care about pretty much anything it would be he would be going to like that type of place it's like a a pauper's funeral almost yeah it's really cool tony todd tells them that only new life can defeat death and i lost my mind when burke <laughs> is immediately like what the hell does that mean because i also was like what the hell does that mean it's so good. But they realize that Isabella's baby was never supposed to be born because it would have died in the crash. So if they can get that baby out, the list gets torn up, is what they think, at least. Which is, it, does that stand to logic, do you think? Where if one <laughs> life sure. saves like five people's lives, I guess. Who knows, man, Who I knows? guess. <laughs> I guess logic is out the window. Who cares? <laughs> Uh, Kimberly has a vision of herself driving the van that she thinks is the van that Isabella was in during the crash into a van and drowning or into a lake. 
she, she sees herself crashing into a lake and drowning. Mm-hmm. But they move on to track down Isabella using the plate number on the van, which they manage to see because Burke is a police officer. And Rory, they, they, they cut. He, they're basically, they're like, all right, we're going to look for, we're going to send someone to look for Isabella. We're going to gather up the rest of the victims, I guess we'll call them. <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, and, um, and we'll sort of explain the situation to them. And so Rory is on his way to join the rest of the, the, the survivors. And, uh, he, well, they don't survive. Rory, he fucking dies. <laughs> <laughs> he joins the rest of the group. <laughs> uh, he enters an elevator with a faulty sensor. He grabs his shoe on the way up, which I think is fun. Nice little foreshadowing again. Mm-hmm. Also, the elevator Muzak is Rocky Mountain High. I didn't catch that one. That's good. That is a good one. Uh, and so, like I said, he's on his way up to Burke's apartment. Burke says that another cop is going to get Isabella because they reported her car stolen, which is kind of a really fucked up abuse of power there by Burke. Yeah, and it's kind of problematic because it's like a Latino person, too, and they're just playing yeah. over. It's like, no, we're just taking you to jail. And it's like, especially with recent events, you're like, uh-oh. <laughs> it's not great. No. It's not great. But Eugene and Nora get frustrated and leave. And this is when Rory sees a sign indicating a man with hooks. <laughs> well, doesn't the mom say, like, I don't want to be alive anymore? I, something yeah, she's like, if it's my time, then whatever. Like, I'm fine with going to meet my son and husband who have both been murderized. Well, the husband has already been dead, but the son was murderized. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And so they, they leave, and, and they get into the elevator with a man carrying a box of prosthetic limbs. <laughs> Where was he going with that? Who knows, but convenient for death yeah sure her dropping the phone that she gets a phone call from them trying to be like hey watch out uh that leads her to drop the phone leading to the hook getting tangled in her hair and when the door opens and she tries to run out she gets yanked back and actually them call like them trying to rush out and calling the elevator uh that actually is what kills her (laughs) because it's their own damn fault. Her, her, she gets yanked back. The doors close on her neck. The elevator elevates, eventually chopping her head clean off. At which point she says, I don't want to die. So she says, she sure does. Yeah. So she was a minute ago. She was like, I don't care if I die. And when it actually came down to it, she was like, well, I want to live, but it's too late. So <laughs> yeah, sorry. Too little, too late. Yep. Uh, Eugene freaks out and he tries to shoot himself and end things on his term, but the gun jams and he can't do it. I just think that it's so funny. I was like, man, death is a petty motherfucker. I love it. Death has that fuck around and find out energy. It's like, oh, yeah, try the gun. What are you going to do? Oh, it doesn't work. Oh, it's too bad. <laughs> Six times it doesn't work. Yeah. Take that. <laughs> and so, like we said, Isabella is in the holding cell because she has been taken in <laughs> for stealing her own van uh, and her water breaks. So she and the cop hit the road, as do the rest of the gang, who all talk about previous near-death misses. A cat avoided a gas leak at a bed and breakfast because she got held up by being in the bus that splattered the girl in the first one. <laughs> Burke avoided a shootout by going, as he says, to scrape up Sean William Scott from the first one as well. Uh, and just a couple more like fun little connections that really ratchet up the eeriness and also explain why death is working backwards because it's actually the order of the deaths that they avoided the first time around related to the crash of flight 180. Yeah. And 
I haven't seen the rest of them, but my understanding, the entire series has this weird continuity to it, right? Because they're just kind of like, they all kind of tie together in a way like the early Saw movies did. As they're driving, a tire blows out, and they also, they almost smash right into Isabella on the road. Uh, which, that would have been a hell of an ending, honestly, if they just <laughs> yeah. all fucking crashed and died. Just get them all done at once. Uh, but they skid out, and a bunch of PVC pipes from a farm they crashed through uh, impale the car, stabbing Eugene in the lung and almost killing the heck out of Cat. Yeah, and then the uh, the log like blocks are in, right? Right. Yeah, yeah. she's trapped there, uh, stuck on. It's like trapped on her leg. I thought it was so funny that Isabella is like, absolutely fuck those guys. Get me to a hospital. <laughs> They're like, no. <laughs> I don't want to deal with this. I have a kid. And so the rest of them pull out Eugene. Cat, like we said, is trapped in the car. A news van comes screaming in. Where, how did they know? Were they just They're like probably out there listening to the to the cop radio? And they were just like, in. "Let's go!" <laughs> yeah, they really they come in hot. Rory has to pull the farm owner's son out of the way of getting also splattered by this <laughs> news van. Yeah. This kid is also wearing a very funny cartoon head Limp Biscuit shirt, which I laughed about. <laughs> yeah, that was good. And he's, he's just like, this is my farm shirt. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> but the news van screeches to a halt, assisted by some rocks that pierce the gas tank. I like this moment that follows it where Rory asks Kimberly to clean out his apartment when he dies. It's, I mean, it's not a ton of depth, but it kind of gives you a little insight into, like, there's something going on behind these people. They're not just disposable cardboard people <laughs> to be thrown at these Rube Goldbergs, even though they are, you know? It, there's They at least are like, eh, here's a little something for you. Yeah, I thought that was really sweet and, like, surprisingly effective for the movie, because you're just, like, having fun, and then that's, like, one of the few moments of just reality. You'd be like, yeah, if you were in that situation... And you're just like, I don't have anybody else. Can you please take care of this? And it's, yeah, yeah, it's sweet. We've seen him doing drugs the entire movie. And he's like, uh, can you like get rid of like all my paraphernalia and shit? So my mom, <laughs> her heart doesn't break. I'm like, yeah, that's, that's a nice thing for him. It's real. It's like when, uh, you know, you have a buddy be like, Hey, can you delete my browser history if I die suddenly? <laughs> exactly. They hear about Isabella going to the hospital and Kat says to just leave her behind. She'll be fine. Just in time for a rescue worker to set off her airbag with the jaws of life, slamming her head on the pointed PVC pipe that had narrowly missed her the first time around. <laughs> what an incompetent ambulance driver. Like, why didn't you cut sucked. off the PVC pipe? He was awful. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, her cigarette falls, igniting the gas from the news van, which sends the farm's barbed wire fence right at Rory, slicing him in three pieces, which slide off each other. I was thinking about this. Like I said, it looks really good, but it's good that this is cartoony because it's in another movie. Some of these deaths could have been really tough to watch. And that deft hand at balancing the tone, I think is what makes is part of what makes these movies so special to me. Yeah. And I think it's kind of a really like Tom and Jerry esque, except without the fact they come back like 10 seconds later, but you're right. Like if it was something like that, you saw like his brains fall out and it was just really gruesome. You'd be like, Oh no, that's not, <laughs> that's not fun. They're rushing to the hospital. Kimberly has another vision. This time of a doctor named Kalarjian that Kim jumps right to is going to try and kill Isabella, which is, <laughs> That's really a stretch yeah, from, the, from the vision. Yeah. But Isabella is having her baby, and the umbilical cord is wrapped around its neck, which I think is a nice, like, death is even going to get this baby. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
And it kind of like, it's a subtle way of trying to blow up their plan too. Yeah. The ventilator in Eugene's room, because he did get taken to this hospital as well, uh, gets disconnected and the oxygen is leaking and it looks like the end for Eugene. Yeah, because isn't that in the scene too, like the vents close and you can see him and he's just helpless. He's looking around. He's like, oh, damn it. Like, yeah, he's just like realizing he could be screwed right now. Yeah. And I was watching the deleted scenes and there's one where he like, there is like an orderly there or a nurse or something. And he like asks for a pen <laughs> and the guy is like, oh yeah, I'll get you some crosswords too. And then just walks out and like, never see him the, again. He just fucks off. And uh, Eugene is like, oh man, I'm really fucking done for in here. Wow. That would have been amazing. They kept that in. He's just like, eh, whatever. <laughs> deal with death every day yeah but uh you know the baby is born and everyone is excited and the ventilator kicks in on emergency battery mode hooray yeah it's like a kind of a well not a false ending but you know you're kind of like oh it's a false hope everything's gonna be fine yeah and you check and you're like oh shit 15 minutes left (laughs) (laughs) um kimberly has another vision and this is when she realizes that it wasn't isabella seeing it was her i even think that this is this is the one thing where I'm like her visions every, I mean, we've already seen that every character makes insane choices all along as Mm -hmm. particularly demonstrated by Evan, but every choice where she's like, Oh, of course I'm seeing things from Isabella's perspective. Oh, of course this doctor is going to try and kill her. (laughs) Like all these choices are just weird assumptions that she makes. Yeah. And it's almost, you could make the argument that, death is the one who is giving her those and that in a in a weird way she's indirectly helping death kill all these people wow because she saw the pigeon and she was like pigeons which (laughs) led him to the kid to die and then she's like oh i see the vans we need to get isabella to get everybody together and all that stuff it's kind of interesting to think about yeah absolutely clear goes to check on eugene after hearing about this new vision uh but her opening the door pulls the plug out that last little bit, which causes a spark, killing both Eugene and Clear. I was like, damn, Grim Reaper is getting good at this. Two off the list at once. I know. And just the way they show her, like, all of her skin burn off, and it's just like, that's kind of, it looked, it was, yeah, it was pretty gross, but it was kind of great (laughs) at the same time. Oh, absolutely. Um, And this was the same year that she did uh, Varsity Blues, wasn't it? Or was that before this? Uh, I think it might have been a little before it. Okay. Honestly. But, well, let's check. We got the internet. That's the beauty of it. Yeah. It might be the first Final Destination. Hmm. 1999, Varsity Blues came. Okay, so it would have been the first Final Destination then. Still, that's quite a year for her. Yeah. Kimberly recognizes the premonition as happening right now and she drives the ambulance into the lake Uh, i like that she says let me make this as difficult as possible and really launches off the pier instead of like slowly just driving off of it so that she's near the shore yeah it's really bizarre because she kisses the cop on the cheek and steals an ambulance and it's like (laughs) you've killed more people because now they can't save lives so what are you doing you're making so many poor choices in this movie yeah, and Burke makes a well, I mean, I guess it works out, but Burke is like she he gets told to go get Kalarjian. <laughs> he's like, I'm not gonna do that, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> and he's just like, No, I'm gonna chase after you and jump in this thirty seven degree water and be able to hold my breath for like forty five minutes and try to save Hell you. Yeah. Hell yeah. yeah. Well, she he doesn't save her because she does drown. Yeah. <laughs> but luckily she is defibrillated. 
by the doctor creating the semantic new life that de- that defeats death and i'm not sure i guess I, they didn't really explain how she got out of the lake did she because she just kind of died and then she dragged her i guess it doesn't matter it's <laughs> like the theme of this movie it's fine who cares stuff blows up Fine. Every time you think about something, you're like, that doesn't make sense. Ultimately, you wind up with who cares? Yeah, it's kind of my general attitude to movies. I, I know a lot of people can like nitpick and really pick up on stuff and continuity errors. And a lot of times I'll just get lost in a movie and be like, oh, yeah, Kung Lao <laughs> cut that guy in half with his hat. It was awesome. <laughs> hell yeah, Kung Lao <laughs> killing yeah, it. Hell yeah. Literally. <laughs> but later, so it's they, she survives. They feel like they've defeated death. Kimberly and Burke are having a picnic with the Gibbons and Kimberly's father. And uh, the Gibbons explain that their son, Brian, was nearly hit by the news van earlier uh, and that Rory did have to pull him out of the way. Uh, And so as a result, (laughs) we see Brian suddenly explode (laughs) caused by a malfunctioning barbecue grill. Amazing finale as the arm drops directly onto his mother's plate. What a delight. What a movie. I wish they had said Bon Appetit. B-O-N-E. <laughs> yeah. But um, what do you think he was grilling? Uh, I think he was grilling arms. I don't think that was his. <laughs> <laughs> you think so? He's fine. It's just the arm is done. He's serving it to his mom in a creative way. Yeah. <laughs> All of the food exploded off of the grill onto their plates. It was really incredible theatricality by by uh, whatever the kid, Brian. <laughs> wow. Incredible. <laughs> and, you know, that's that's where it ends. I think that it's a great little finale. It keeps things... Like it keeps the possibility of things open, whether they wanted to continue with Kimberly and Burke, because clearly death is still doing its thing. It also leaves things open to just be like, all right, they escaped. Brian was like the one loose end, and now we can move on, which actually was the case. But uh, I think that putting myself like in the moment as like, how would I have reacted to this without having seen the other ones? I think that this is a great, great ending. Yeah, and I kind of like it when they do things like that because. If you want, like, if this movie hadn't been successful, then they could have gone into a new start. And if it had been really successful, they could have been like, okay, we'll get these people back for the sequel and we'll see what their continued adventures or whatever. Um, it was just. The first one did this as well uh, when the guy gets crushed by the sign. And then uh, we're like, oh, what's going to happen to the other two? So they know what they're doing. Yeah. And it's kind of interesting to think about the first one to the second one because the first one starred Devin Sawa. And it was like, wow, Devin Sawa was so famous, he didn't want to come back to another Final Destination movie. And now it's like, <laughs> what happened there? It's yeah. like the weird 90s movies where, all, where did these actors go? It's strange. <laughs> Look, here's what I'm saying. Bring back Clear, bring back Alex, get Devin Sawa. Let's get the band <laughs> the back together. Back. Hell yes. Reboot starring elderly high schoolers. <laughs> and then do a post credit sequence and Mia Jovovich comes in and it's a Resident Evil movie now. Wow. It's flawless. We should send that to ourselves in a stamp envelope, a sealed envelope. <laughs> we don't want anyone stealing that idea. No. <laughs> um, and so uh, now, Pat, we've reached the the point of the episode where we sum up why this is not just a good horror movie, but is, in fact, the best horror movie ever made. And uh, you know I'm going to let you kick things off. Okay. Uh, this is the best horror movie ever made because... It was innovative for the genre and did things that no other movie had done at the time, except for the first movie in the series. It's one of the more satisfying movies to watch in that you get exactly what you expect from it, and in some ways even more so. And I think it 
in a weird way, has something for the whole family. <laughs> so every, everybody can enjoy this movie, in my opinion. Kids of all ages. <laughs> yep. Mm-hmm. From one to 100, just like the puzzles. <laughs> yeah, to me, this is the best horror movie ever made because not only is it just incredibly fun, which it is, from the minute this movie starts until the minute it ends, it is a riot. It is so much fun to just sit back and watch things unfold. But on top of that, this has really affected people. Every time you're in a car with people and you get behind a truck, like a log truck, mm-hmm. ooh, Final Destination 2, you remember that scene with the fucking log truck? Anytime you talk about Final Destination, oh, you remember the opening pileup of, of part two? People react to this viscerally. It has been incorporated into the popular lexicon in a way that most movies can only dream of. And I think that because it managed to do that while maintaining a tone that is spectacularly balanced, performances that are perfect for what is needed, obviously these are not like Oscar caliber performances, but for the movie they are perfect. All of that winds up just being something that is a a great time, and that's why it's the best horror movie ever made. Yes, I agree. (laughs) (laughs) Patrick, this was so much fun, man. I have been dying to talk about Final Destination movies, so I'm thrilled that you picked it. And please, uh, if you have anything to plug, plug it. Yeah, I guess if you want, you can follow me on Instagram. I'm count underscore your underscore bruises. But the main thing, I donate to Food Not Bombs. Food Not Bombs is an organization that repurposes food from grocery stores and through donations. Uh, They feed billions of people because there's a billion people every day that go hungry. They have sound setups in 10,000 cities across the entire world. And they using their abilities to feed the homeless to protest war and war spending and things like that. Uh, If you go to foodnotbombs.net, you can donate to them and help save lives. Sounds extremely worthwhile. And now I feel bad about just plugging my real normal (laughs) shit. Sorry, I'm sorry. No, hey, that's I'm glad. Make more people should make me feel bad by plugging <laughs> charities. Um, but you can follow me on Twitter at Little Horror PHL. Sign up for the Patreon if you're enjoying the show. Uh, we do a lot of fun stuff over there, including bonus episodes about movies like Solaris and Begotten, um, legal thrillers, which are like movie argument l- law. I decide who wins arguments. It's fun. <laughs> it's a fun time. And like I said, we're doing the X-Files watch along and all tiers get access to that. So, you know, that's a good time. Oh, yeah. So check that stuff out. And uh, you know what? Don't write and review. Tell a friend. Tell one person that you think might like this show. Hey. Have you heard about the best little horror house in Philly? And I bet they'll say no, because we're a very small podcast. (laughs) (laughs) And you can tell them all about it, and then you'll be the cool guy who was early to the party when the show inevitably blows up and is huge. So won't that be satisfying? Yeah, I'm going to do it, so you should too. What have you got to lose? Uh, Only the respect of your peers. (laughs) 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 Thanks again, Patrick. This was a lot of fun, and uh, bye, everyone. Bye.